Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Christopher Lowe about his new book, Imperial Mecca, Ottoman Arabia and the Indian Ocean Hajj. Then we check in with Mohammed Ali Kadivar about the current wave of protests in Iran. Uh, Ali is going to talk to us about the dynamics of those protests, where they came from, and based on his research, where they might be going. Finally, as with every episode this fall, we talk to some of the authors of one of the chapters in our book, The Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprising. On this week's episode, we talk to, to Sarah Alcazaz and Lana Salman about their role in the chapter towards a relational approach to local politics. Thanks for listening to our program. I'm Mark Lynch. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. And on this week's book segment, we're joined by Michael Christopher Lowe at the University of Utah. We're talking about his new book, Imperial Mecca, Ottoman Arabia and the Indian Ocean Hajj, published by Columbia University Press. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So um, as you know, I, I really enjoy this book. I already wrote a review of it, and um, I'm really excited to bring this uh, to our political science uh, audience. Tell us a little bit about the book, um, you know, why you wrote it, and what you think like the major contribution of it is. Yeah, so I mean, this, this is an interesting question when people have asked me sort of wh why I wrote the book. I think it's a sort of meandering uh, series of accidents, right? Um, so I started my career out, uh, actually kind of stumbled into Middle Eastern studies, was a school teacher in Atlanta, uh, wound up studying uh, with uh, Donald Malcolm Reed, uh, an Egyptian uh, scholar of, of some repute uh, uh, back in the early 2000s at Georgia State University. And um, I, I came into an MA program, a sort of world history program, thinking, you know, I would do British India. I, you know, it's a 20 something year old imagination of what they might like to do. Um, and I got hooked up with Don. He convinced me to study Persian. You know, one thing led to another. I find myself in Arabic classes. I find myself in Yemen. Um, and I find this project in the British archives looking at cholera outbreaks on the Hajj. And that was sort of the first thing that kind of got me hooked. And my master's thesis became an article in Ijmas um, on that subject, really a sort of colonial uh, study. I didn't have, you know, quite the Arabic and the Turkish and the Ottoman to sort of do the full project at that point. Um, but I realized that there was a way that uh, the Arabian Peninsula, the, the story of the Hajj, the Hijaz, uh, the Red Sea could be told as a kind of conversation between Ottoman and Middle Eastern studies, study of the Arabian Peninsula, and a sort of colonial story from South Asia and the Indian Ocean. Um, and it was, I think, you know, in those years of the master's program, kind of without all of the requisite language skills that I would, you know, later need to put this project together, sort of operating from a position of weakness, but I was cobbling together these historiographies um, and reading a lot of sort of world history, global history, trans-regional history, and thinking about how I could kind of piece this thing together. And I always kind of have, have, have said that, you know, the project came out of South Asia. The ideas were about of a South Asian and Indian Ocean and global history context, but I wanted to answer them back with Arabic, Turkish, 
and Ottoman Turkish sources and do a kind of, I believe Ing Sing Ho, you know, called this a kind of thick mm -hmm. trans-regionalism um, and tell a story that, you know, wasn't an eye-rolling global history where, you know, area study specialists would just go, ah, this is, you know, this is just fluff. Um, and I wanted to hit that happy medium where you could do a specialist history, but people from outside of your discipline and outside of your geographic focus could pick it up and say, oh, you know, this, this brings something new, a new angle to the way that I think about things and think about really the construction of the region as a whole. And, you know, coming at this as a political scientist and, uh, you know, mostly focusing on the Arab world, um, I found uh, the, the recentering of the center of gravity uh, to be just incredibly refreshing and eye-opening, placing uh, the Hejaz uh, within its imperial context, within the Indian Muslim context. These are the sorts of things that, you know, it sort of seems obvious it, once you've said it, but a lot of people in our field don't say it. Yeah, look, I think that... Uh, Hijaz is an interesting place. Uh, you know, in the introduction to the book, I kind of talk about how it's it's a really important backwater. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a political center of power for most of Islamic history and certainly not modern history. Uh, you know, we can say the 20th century oil has sort of, you know, rearranged the map of, of how we think about uh, hard and soft power. Uh, in the region, but Mecca is a sort of far away frontier province for the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. It's it's both politically and logistically, physically difficult for the Ottomans to sort of maintain their semi-autonomous rule, and particularly so with the sort of looming threat of uh, British extraterritorial meddling uh, mm -hmm. in Yemen, in the Red Sea, in the Hejaz itself, and in the politics of the Caliphate and the Hajj. Um, and so I think it's a sort of uh, a little bit of a counterintuitive set of questions. We know Mecca and the Hajj are important, but we don't sort of stop to think about Mecca, the Hijaz and the Hajj's position geopolitically often mm -hmm. and the sort of real nuts and bolts day to day mechanics, uh, the kind of messy mechanics of how things work, how sovereignty works, how law works, uh, how things are run. Um, and that was what I was trying to get at. Instead of starting from a standpoint of, you know, thinking Abdul Hamid and pan-Islam and those sorts of very high-flown questions, I wanted to look at the day-to-day -day mechanics. And what I found in the archives told a, a little bit different story that kind of uh, tilted some of those assumptions from the historiography on their head. Very, very much so. And, you know, before we get to the, the, the question of cholera, which I really want to talk about, Let's talk a little bit about the Hajj itself. I think people have a general idea of it as, you know, kind of uh, an injunction uh, in, in Islam and, you know, the sense of the, the, you know, the Hajj itself. But as you said, the actual mechanics of getting all of those people to the Hejaz, that's a story of infrastructure. And that's a story of logistics, which, you know, again, there's a lot, there's more of this going on in literature now, but it's really quite novel, I think, uh, kind of in the broader historiography. So tell us, you know, in, in a capsule form about the Hajj, how, how is it administered? Who's going on it? And, you know, what, what did you learn about the implementation of, of this annual uh, uh, epic? 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I've tried to do in this book is, as you, you mentioned, to, to sort of think infrastructurally, right? And it, it doesn't make much sense to sort of write the 19th and early 20th century uh, without a history of, of, of steam. And of course, lots of people have been doing this for the Hajj. I, I'm not the only one to be to be doing it. Um, but I think it, it helps us again in this process of remapping where the Hajj and the Hijaz are. Um, and if you sort of think of it as an infrastructural question, uh, as a question of steam uh, and rail, uh, water infrastructure, all these kinds of things, uh, then the Hijaz is no longer a sort of frontier on the edge of the Ottoman Empire. It's at the center. Uh, it becomes in yeah, the I middle love, of- I love that. I, I love the way you reframe it like that. It really changes yeah. how you think about it. I, I think so. And, and I think the other thing too, is to sort of think about the history of, of pilgrimage uh, in the 19th century as a, a sort of story, a way to think about modern travel, right? Mm -hmm. So where do we get borders? Where do we get passports? How might we think about Muslim mobility as something maybe parallel to uh, restrictions on Asian labor? Uh, mobility uh, mm -hmm. at the same time. Uh, poor pilgrims or pilgrims carrying disease as a kind of colonial question uh, uh, of restricting the mobility of the other, right? And so things that we take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis, what is our, what's the function of our passport? Right. You know, if we're you know, an American or uh, a European, we may think, uh, uh, you know, at our, our, our core, our passport, you know, gives us the ability to go out into the world and see. Well, the story that I'm telling is to, to take a passport is actually a series of restrictions, a way of controlling and slowing flows. And so if we think about the steamship Hajj, it's a sort of explosion of new energy uh, in the Hajj. So maybe you're talking about 1850, uh, you know, a primarily monsoon uh, uh, sail-driven Hajj. You might have, let's say, 40 or 50,000 participants. But by World War One, you have 300,000 participants. And in an era sort of dominated by cholera outbreaks, that becomes not just a question for the Islamic world, but a major international Europe, European colonial geopolitical question, right? So it changes the, the stakes and the scale of the issue uh, in really dramatic ways. It really does. And just to follow up on the passport issue for a second, one of the things you talk about a lot in the book, which is really interesting, is, you know, the political question of who has responsibility for Indian Muslims when they come to Mecca? Is it the Ottoman Caliph or is it the Raj? Yeah, I mean, that that question, I think, becomes uh, such a tricky one. Um you know, once the Ottoman Empire, uh, excuse me, the British Empire gets a sort of inkling that it may find itself at cross purposes uh, with the Ottomans, particularly during the reign of Abdul Hamid II, um, a lot of attention goes into sort of questioning the validity of Ottoman claims to the caliphate, sort of diminishing their claims over the Arabian Peninsula. There's a lot of uh, fantasizing and a lot of it is far-fetched and not necessarily very realistic, but it comes up over and over again, this idea of perhaps the Sharif of Mecca and the caliphate could be a kind of appanage of the British Raj. Perhaps it could be another princely state, that perhaps the caliphate could be yet another feather in this great Indian Muslim empire, right? And so demographically, the Raj is thinking, 
we're the preeminent Muslim empire uh, demographically, not the Ottomans. Mm -hmm. And it was a way to sort of uh, diminish those pan-Islamic bonds, but also to sort of confront Muslims with a question. You know, when you show up in Jeddah or Mecca and you have poor infrastructure, maybe you're raided by a Bedouin party, um, that's the Ottoman Empire. That's the way that they wanted you to see, you know, the, the majesty of the, the caliphate and Khadim al-Haramayn al-Sharifayn, the sort of caretaker of the two holy places. And they wanted to contrast that and say, look at the orderliness and the safety of the steamships which you're born on. Now, that wasn't necessarily true, right? There was plenty of cholera, plenty of uh, sort of uh, opportunities for disaster on board those colonial steamships. But it was a way of making a kind of contrast, right? The sort of orderly steamship colonial world of the British versus the sort of old Muslim space-time of the Hijaz, uh, the disorder, the autonomy, if you will, of the Sharifate of Mecca. Um, and that was a way for uh, the British to really lay claim to their legitimacy as protectors of this holy right, facilitators, really, uh, of, of the Hajj. Well, now let's talk about cholera, because it, it looms very heavily in the book. And again, it's one of those things that, um, you know, looking at it, clearly this was a world-shaping epidemic, which was a very high political salience. It's also largely forgotten. I think, uh, in, in, by a lot of us, because so, so many other things happened, um, you know, in that whole time period. But I mean, I think the book makes a really convincing case for the centrality of trying to grapple with cholera to, um, to all of these issues, with the Hajj very much being one of the super spreader events, if you will. So talk us through this a little bit in terms of how this became such an issue and what effects it had on these type of political and infrastructural um, developments that you're describing? Yeah, I mean, so, uh, you know, going back uh, to the early 1980s, uh, someone like William Roth, uh, you know, wrote uh, a really nice little article called Sanitation and Security. Um, and this, I think, has uh, really inspired a lot of scholars who have worked on this sort of colonial question of the management of the Hajj. Uh, so now we have, you know, books about the Hajj from Central Asia, you know, the Russian Hajj, you know, French, Dutch, British, uh, Indian, kind of all over. And I think all of them in some way, shape or form, take some inspiration from Roth's sort of attempt to, to grapple um, with this. Um, but this was sort of mostly a kind of, uh, you know, colonial source-based uh, thinking of the Hajj as a kind of potential danger zone. Um, and I wanted to kind of recenter this and put it really in the hands of, you know, the traditional, you know, protector of the holy places, uh, you know, the Ottomans, and look at how their job was made so much more difficult by having to deal with all of these novel infrastructural mm -hmm. uh, developments that happen in the late 19th and early 20th century, and then also being sort of chipped away at, at the edges by all of these, you know, European empires uh, at, at their frontiers. Um, but, you know, cholera was sort of, it was sort of the first question that I thought about for this project, but it kind of became a character in every different phase of the project, mm -hmm. right? It could be the international sanitary conferences as a way to think about uh, sort of um, proto-international organizations, right? We could think of something like the World Health Organization as having come out of that experience of 
empires having to communicate with one another to deal with a pandemic uh, over many, many decades. It was also fascinating there that the British refused to accept uh, the science because it would be politically inconvenient. Sounds very familiar in our uh, COVID context, right? Uh, You know, I was repeatedly struck, you know, over 2020, 2021 of those kinds of parallels, right? The British were constantly sort of denying the need for heavier quarantine regulations, uh, for more restrictions, for more thoughtful restrictions. To them, you know, the Hajj was something they needed to facilitate because they didn't want to upset their Muslim Mm -hmm. uh, subjects. Um, The Ottomans, on the other hand, of course, they didn't want the Hajj to be restricted, but they also didn't want to be dealing with constant, you know, uh, boiling uh, uh, outbreaks of cholera. And so you have this sort of uh, role reversal. We think of the Ottomans often as the sick man of Europe as somehow less sophisticated. But in fact, they were constantly imbibing new discoveries from Robert Koch or Louis Pasteur about germ theory and sanitation and trying to coax the British, who, of course, we would think of as the more sophisticated, you know, technological partner, to accept these kind of basic restrictions. Uh, Now, eventually in the 1890s, plague hitting Hong Kong and Bombay sort of, uh, you know, uh, really sort of put an end to that kind of resistance from the British, but it took 30 years. Um, And you can imagine um, uh, what we've lived through in the past two or three years spread out over, you know, two, three, four, five decades. That was the sort of uh, the gravity of the cholera experience, I think. Now, I, I, I diverted the conversation, but go, go ahead and continue with, your, with what you were saying about uh, the other ways the cholera manifested. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned this before uh, in terms of thinking about travel documentation. You know, if you were a Muslim pilgrim traveling in 1830 or 1850, there was not necessarily anyone who was checking your papers. There was nothing to stop you. Uh, there were no geopolitical reasons why you couldn't leave India to go on Hajj. Perhaps there are Islamic legal reasons why you might question that decision, whether you're physically or financially able. But what changes in the steamship era is those you know, Islamic legal questions of your financial ability, they become internationalized. They become European questions. They become global questions. And they become tied up in the way that we think about crossing borders. And as I mentioned before, this is kind of an early test case. I mean, you know, we don't carry passports uh, as a rule until after World War I. But that Hajj and cholera experience becomes a kind of experimentation ground. And I kind of argue this throughout the book that cholera in many, many ways, whether it's autonomy, sovereignty, borders, passports, new technologies, becomes a laboratory for a lot of different uh, ways of thinking about technologies of rule um, and cooperation across empires as well, which I think is one of the more interesting and novel things about the book is not just thinking about one nation state or one empire, but how empires fit together as puzzle pieces and interface or have friction and rub together. Yeah, and that really came through very clearly in the book. Um, and one of the other er- areas is just the sheer physicality of it and the effects on infrastructure. And there's ports, there's water, sanitation, like the whole chapter deals with the effect with the efforts simply to have clean water um, along the Hajj um, in order to stop infectious disease. Um, the quarantine mechanism, where do you put these people? How do you feed them? Um, all of these things. So tell us more about that, since that's kind of the 
you know, the infrastructure and cholera nexus is really central, I thought, to, you know, the contribution. Yeah, I mean, I'll focus on the water part. You know, when I started the project, I, I think I was, you know, the first couple of years that I thought about this issue, I was thinking medical history, quarantine, political, diplomatic. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went to the Ottoman archive, you know, searching for cholera and quarantine, you know, um, and very quickly realized, oh, there's this entire sort of physical and infrastructural set of questions that are much more present in the Ottoman archive that we don't see quite as clearly from the colonial sources. And so as I started to dig into that, it kind of opened up what's really become my second book project, which is a kind of uh, a, a, an environmental history of water in the Arabian Peninsula from 1800 to the future, to 2100, to, to the Anthropocene, if you will. Um, and really what got me going on that second project was uh, an article that I wrote for Comparative Studies in Society and History, uh, which was the Ottoman roots uh, or Ottoman infrastructures of the Saudi hydro state. Mm -hmm. And what, what really got me interested there and was the kind of aha moment, you know, it really teaches the value of doing the work in the archive, is I'm reading one day and I, in this Ottoman uh, document and I see a line and it says something like, uh, we need to order a machine like the one that they have, the British have in Suez to make sweet water from salt water. And I rub my eyes and sort of think, uh, you know, crazy foreigner, you're, you're, you know, Ottoman is so bad, you're, you're, you're hallucinating this, mm -hmm. right? And then I see document after document after document. Well, they're ordering a desalination machine in 1894-95. And so this became a kind of obsession. Well, you know, in my reading, I would think, okay, Toby Jones, you know, someone, a scholar of Saudi Arabia might write about this in the late 1970s. What is this doing in Jeddah in the 1890s through World War I. And it, so it got me thinking, you know, what are the real sort of mechanics of how you provision for the Hajj, how empires coordinate with one another, how you develop, uh, you know, what I think for most people, if you look at most of the historiography, late 19th, early 20th century uh, Hijaz is, you know, it might as well be uh, you know, uh, the Umayyad Caliphate. I mean, it, it's, it's stands still in time. It's as if it never developed. Um, but in fact, you see the beginnings of this sort of technocratic way of seeing even this very uh, frontier region. And that really sort of changed the way that I thought as a historian um, and reoriented my interests in, in quite dramatic ways. And the, the book works across so many different scales. So you're talking about these grand imperial competitions, but then there's also laying down pipes for clean water disrupts the local political economy of the people who have big tanks of water. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the great thing is that story seems so... Uh, uh, so local, so granular, almost, you know, boring and mundane, but then you peel back and you have someone like the Sakaf family, you know, Hadrami diasporic family spread between Jeddah and Singapore, and they're hoarding sort of all of the water resources and monopolizing steamship ticketing and, you know, whether or not you can get a, a, a mutawaf, a guide, mm. uh, can you get a, a, a camel to hire to go from Jeddah to Mecca? All of these services were being packaged almost like a package tour. But, you know, for these, uh, you know, empires, these novel sort of uh, 
a kind of a new capitalism in the Hijaz, it seemed like corruption, right? And certainly there were elements of that that were, you know, coercive for uh, pilgrims. Uh, but I think it's one good example when you mentioned something like water tanks, that could be something really dusty, dry, and seemingly meaningless. Mm -hmm. And then it has this sort of almost global footprint, which I found to be, you know, a fascinating part of the project. No, it, it, it truly is. Um, and then so kind of coming towards, you know, more towards the end of it, then you've got, you know, the this is all coming to a head as we're approaching World War One and, uh, you know, the, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the like. And so trace this through a little bit. You know, you've got at the one hand, this escalating geopolitical tensions. On the other hand, you've got this technological process. How does it all come together in those kind of fateful years? Yeah, I mean, I think of the late 19th century for the Ottomans as a sort of race to bring the Hijaz and the frontier in a lot of different places uh, throughout the empire closer to the center. So this might be uh, building telegraph lines, building railways. You know, uh, famously, you know, early on in the project, I would sit in seminars or in conferences and people would say, oh, of course, you're going to write a new history of the Hijaz railway. And I would say, no, that's been done. You know, we know that story. And then I finally came around and I thought of the Hijaz Railway as a kind of metaphor, right? They're racing to build this infrastructure to bring the frontier closer to modernize Mecca, to modernize the Hijaz, um, to sort of uh, tame this frontier that was sort of slipping away towards, you know, uh, uh, the orbit of British India. And they ran out of time. You know, and, and I think that the Hijaz Railway is a great metaphor. You know, stopping in Medina, it didn't quite make it. It didn't arrive in enough time. And so this, you know, whole story of autonomy and sovereignty and modernization is, you know, a, a process where the Ottomans, they understood the problems of this frontier governance. And they had been working for decades to sort of rein in this issue to end this extraterritorial drift, you know, into the orbit of, of another empire. But ultimately, you know, the, the clock runs out mm -hmm. on them. And so, you know, when we think about something, the dramatic events of the Hijaz Railways construction or T.E. Lawrence and the Arab Revolt, uh, Sharif Hussein, you know, they lend themselves to a certain kind of, you know, interpersonal drama. Uh, but the story that I tell is... You know, autonomy was always the ticking time bomb and the Ottomans were trying desperately to defuse it. But this was a decades long kind of a constitutional problem with the Hijaz that couldn't just be undone. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you couldn't just say, OK, we'll send a governor to the Hijaz and get rid of the Sharif of Mecca. There were too many moving parts and the Ottomans knew it. They knew that they would have too much violence to deal with. So they tried a kind of technological and constitutional workaround, but they ran out of time. Um, and on the other side of the ledger, you know, the British had bided their time. They had sort of seen the, the possibility of integrating the Hijaz as a kind of, you know, satellite, you know, the way that you might think of the way that the Gulf states developed, right, in the 20th century. There was a lot of thinking about uh, the Sharifate as that kind of possibility. Right. You know, World War One rolls around, they try it and it failed miserably. You know, they were it was a very blatant attempt to sort of manipulate uh, Islamic sentiment that, you know, failed almost instantaneously. But you see those two projects, right, a kind of extraterritorial British control 
it, they, they grasp it for a, a, a millisecond and it falls apart. And then on the other hand, Ottoman modernization to the frontier wasn't quite possible. The Tanzimat, of course, came to all parts of the empire to different degrees, right? right? And that's part of, I think, what the book is trying to tell us is that that process was uneven. It didn't, it's not that it didn't happen to some degree, even, you know, in a very special place like uh, the Hijaz, but we have to measure what that means exactly. Let me ask you one last question. I'm moving a little bit um, beyond the book. Um, so I, I actually first uh, became aware of your work um, when you uh, put together that special issue um, almost ten, almost a decade ago now on Indian Ocean studies. And that, you know, because I'm doing work now on transregionalism and the like, fascinating stuff there. That was about a decade ago. And so, you know, where do you, where, where is this now, do you think? You know, if you're looking at Indian Ocean studies as this kind of increasingly mature um, research area, and you got your book out, you got your new project, you know, what do you, what do you think is interesting? What do people need to know about where Indian Ocean Studies fits within this broader set of intellectual questions and disciplinary questions? You know, this is a really wonderful question. I mean, that uh, uh, Sesame uh, uh, special section that I put together with Niall Green and Eric Tagliacozzo and uh, John Willis uh, and Amal Ghazal. An all-star um, cast. You know, yeah, it was a wonderful. I mean, I was very lucky as a, you know, a sort of ending PhD student to be able to get the uh, the collective wisdom of, of that group together. Um, you know, I, I think that the story of Indian Ocean work is very much parallel to sort of global history. It's a story of triumph and also slightly a story of tragedy, right? So I remember uh, the late Adam McEwen, uh, who was a scholar of uh, um, migration and, and, and China and, and global history, who was at Columbia while I was there. And I said, where do you think that international and global history is going? You know, he and Matt Connolly had just started the program there. And he said, you know, maybe in five, 10, 15 years, there won't be a need for a program like this because everyone will have imbibed this way of thinking and it will have permeated out then of course in the same breath he said but of course it won't it won't be the same the conversation people will think okay i've heard this message received it and i brought it back to my you know european history or colonial history or whatever region i study and i think indian ocean it it's it suffers from the same kinds of institutional problems. Fahad Bashar and I've had, you know, a number of conversations about this. Uh, you know, we have wonderful work, a kind of cast of characters who are doing interesting things, but where's the home? Uh, there's no annual conference. There's no center of gravity. I mean, I work with uh, Gwen Campbell at McGill and their Indian Ocean World Center. That's one kind of place that has tried to pioneer and keep this going. You know, Ned Alpers at UCLA for a long time, you know, sort of pioneered this kind of work uh, uh, from, from East Africa looking uh, out. And certainly Ing Sing Ho has done his part. But it, it's, you know, trans-regional regions and global history, I think, are in the same boat. Uh, they don't have the depth of institutional resources like Middle Eastern studies or the old area studies. You know, there are problems there too, but there's a long history and a kind of agreed upon set of boundaries. And so even though we're doing some, you know, really interesting things, will it be reproduced? Uh, how do you train PhD students to do this? It's really hard to do transregional work for a first book and do make a career out of it. The department's going to hire you where you're going to get your fellowships. 
Exactly. Um, and I, I certainly encountered this problem. You know, when I was applying to PhD programs, I got into all global and international and global programs. Uh, and as a, a PhD student who finished at Columbia in, in global history, by the time I, I got out, there were hardly any world jobs left. The fad had gone, right? Uh, so there are hardly any Indian Ocean jobs anymore. And so we're back to sort of how do you fit that into the old area studies molds? And it's a kind of perennial conundrum. Well, as long as we keep having good work being produced, maybe we can uh, find places for it within the discipline. But uh, that's a conversation for another day. Chris, thank you so much uh, for talking with us about your book, uh, Imperial Mecca, just published by Columbia University Press. Um, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure to be here. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's current events segment, we're, we're joined by Mohammed Ali Khanivar, sociology department, Boston College, uh, recently wrote a really nice uh, monkey cage piece for us about the protests in Iran. And um, Ali, thank you for joining us to kind of talk through the dynamics of this new protest wave in Iran. So why don't we start, if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about how these protests erupted and how they gained so much momentum so quickly. So the protest uh, erupted around the death of a 22 years old Iranian woman from uh, Sarkez, which is a Kurdish uh, city in the province of Kurdistan, part of Iran's Kurdistan. Uh, she was picked up by morality police. Morality police is part of the Iran's police that is in charge of making sure that women are wearing uh, proper hijab. And I mean, they are mostly focused on women, but sometimes they also pick up on guys who are not dressed uh, properly as per, per their dress code. Um, so this happens frequently to a lot of women in Iran, and it always gets harsher during uh, some for obvious reasons. Um, so she was picked up and then uh, to, to, to be taken to a class to teach her how to wear proper hijab. And then later her family received calls that uh, she's in hospital. She was visiting Tehran, so she was picked up in Tehran. She went to coma. An Iranian journalist uh, from Sharp newspaper uh, covered this. So that's how it came uh, to the news. And by the way, that journalist is in prison right now. Mm -hmm. That's how Iranian government handles these things. And um, so when she was in coma and the news was out, there was a sense of moral uh, outrage that was being formed. And uh, I could see it on internet, different people, ordinary people were talking about it. And then um, she died uh, after two days in coma. And so you can imagine the moral outrage and sense of mourning was increasing, getting larger. And then it was in her uh, funeral that uh, women took off her, their headscarves and the funeral uh, took the shape of a protest, which is actually very common in Iran. It was a main form of protest in the Iranian revolution of 1979. Since then, government has adopted that into a government form of mobilization. And always government is worried when they kill citizens or journalists or political opposition, they make it very hard for them to have funeral and uh, the rituals related. But this happened. I think one reason was because this was far from Tehran in Sarkis. 
And then um, because of the Kurdish solidarity on the next day, a protest broke out in a few uh, Kurdish cities, Sanandaj, Divandare, and Oshnaviye, I think, if I remember correctly. And then we, 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 we observed a larger spread of the protest around the country. Women activists called for protest uh, next day in Tehran. And I, that was significant when the videos uh, of that protest came out. And then we saw protests erupting in other cities, other bigger, bigger cities or smaller cities. And, and um, Ali, saw... these videos uh, and, and the, the spread of the information about this, this is primarily happening on various social media apps, right? Various social media, mostly Instagram. Instagram. Before, at the time, Instagram was still accessible for uh, Iranian users. Like it's filtered now. I mean, there are a lot of restrictions on internet since the protest erupted. Um, and we saw some new forms of protest, and probably by this point, everyone knows women have been taking off their headscarves, putting them on fire, and other women have been cutting their hair in public in defiance of the uh, hijab laws that has been enforced by government uh, since the Iranian Re revolution, since the inception of the Islamic Republic. And we have heard some new slogans the slogans that we heard on this wave of protests have been also different from previous uh, cycles of protests we have had in Iran. What the major slogan is uh, women, uh, life, freedom, which started in Zanzendegi uh, Azadi in Farsi, which was said in Kurdish first in the Kurdish areas, Zanzian Azadi. And from what I know, this is uh, originated in Rojava. So it's very fascinating how this uh, slogan has traveled. To say more about this slogan, and since I remember, all of the most of the slogans in Iran are about death. So during the revolution was death to the Shah, and then Islamic Republic took over. So it was death to America, then death to people who oppose Velayat Fari, which is the guardianship of jurists. The, or ideology of the regime. And then opposition now also says death to Khamenei, death to dictator and other types of death. And this, this is the first time in my political life, I, or my life, I hear a slogan about life. And I think this is because women are, have been leading this movement and also Kurdish, Kurdish women, Kurdish people were the uh, pioneers of this movement. So we are seeing some new slogan, some uh, new discourse along the previous discourse there we still have death to dictator and death to Islamic Republic as major slogans that are being chanted in this wave of uh, protests. Now is this kind of cross-ethnic uh, solidarity something new? So um, in the way that I think Tehran was connected I think it was new because um, 2009 Green Movement erupted in Tehran. There were large protests, even larger than this one in terms of number of participants. Hundreds of thousands participated and one day it reached millions. But it stayed in Tehran and a few other big cities. It, in Kurdish areas, for example, did not uh, participate. And one main reason for that, I think, is that 2009 movement was related to an election that the regime was holding it became up the movement became oppositional it was against the perceived corruption uh, sorry perceived fraud in the election but still the 
framework of the movement stayed within the framework of the regime. People initially were not calling for the downfall of the regime. They were calling for the recounting of the votes and for another clean election. Um, so Mir and Mir Hossein Musavi, the opposition leader, who was the prime minister of Iran during 1980s, was the major figure or symbolic leader uh, of the movement. This movement is different because it's not coming from within the state. And again, the identity of Mahsa Amini, the woman that was uh, killed under custody, I think is significant. She's a woman. Women makes the largest subjugated group in Iran who has have experienced uh, different types of uh, oppression and repression at the hand of the state. And she was also Kurdish. And the Kurdish people also have a lot of grievances in terms of exclusion. Uh, from the political process uh, in Iran. So they have there have been contentions in the Kurdish regions, armed and unarmed uh, forms of protest. So it's coming from the margins of political process and Iranian society. And I think that's why we see different uh, slogans and different uh, development in, uh, in, this, in this movement. One other difference that I think is related is one of the slogans of the Green Movement was Ya Hossein Mir Hossein, was a slogan for Mir Hossein Musavi, who's a man and not only a man, he's a statement. And in um, 2018, also there were protests in Iran and there were slogans for the Pahlavi monarch, especially its founder, Reza Shah. Um, this time, so name of two men, two statements were significant uh, symbols of some of these previous protests. But this time it's a woman and it's an oppressed woman. It's not a state, a politician woman or a woman from a state. It's a woman from the margin of the society that has brought uh, these uh, people together. Now coming back to your question about ethnic solidarities. Uh, summer of 2021, there were protests in the province of Khuzestan that has Arabs, has Turks and Lors. Uh, Arabs of Khuzestan started protests protesting the quality of water. And uh, we saw some ethnic, uh, cross-ethnic solidarities emerging between uh, lords in that province and Arabs, but didn't, it did not spread beyond. It spread beyond, and I think it's because of the woman uh, identity involved here and uh, all the grievances that women in different cities have experienced. This is what uh, I think uh, brought together an intersection of ethnic solidarity and gender solidarity. And now a lot of Iranian men also know what is happening to Iranian women and are outraged. So you see a lot of men also on the streets protesting. Now you mentioned some of these earlier waves of protest, 2018, 2019, 2021. What's different about this one? Is it just that more women are involved or are you seeing more different types of protests? Um, you know, spreading from the, the, you know, from the countryside into Tehran or vice versa? So certainly more women are involved. Women are at the forefront. That's, that's a difference. I mentioned the other difference about the slogans. Um, it, the way that I think the, the support it has received, none of the previous waves of protests have received. Um, so Initially, 2017-18, a large part of the, I think, middle class or the representative of middle class that we know in uh, athletes or activists or uh, artists, they were shocked by this protest. They didn't know why it was happening. In 2019, when it happened again, internet was down. 
Again, it happened in a shock from the major part of the Tehran middle class, at least. Uh, and then after it was turned, it turned out how many people were killed. A lot of people were shocked at the level of violence that the government used. Uh, according to Amnesty International, more than 300 people were killed. Other organizations have larger numbers. Um, so it was after that that we saw some statements of solidarity from uh, artists, for example, or activists condemning violence in that period. But it came after. Now it's been coming during from like day one, day two, because solidarity started when Mahsa Amini was on the hospital bed. And it's been ongoing and expanding uh, during the protests. So now I have the sense that protests are decreasing in number and number of participants and number of protests across the country, but not the solidarities and supports. I still see uh, news of different people taking position about this. Now, you mentioned uh, the regime violence, and clearly that's happening again. Um, how, how does the regime violence this time compare to in these earlier rounds? And do you think that it's more likely to crush the uprisings or just inspire more? Uh, so in 2017-18, I think about 22-25 people were killed. In 2019, more than 300. And the latest number I have seen so far is about 50-60. So I think it's not been as bad as 2019, but it's worse than 2017-18. Uh, we still need some time to have a better sense of this information usually can come out later. Um, it looks like they, they're very experienced in dealing with this type of uh, protest. Uh, so they have at, at this point pushed people from major urban centers to other streets. Uh, we, we, were, we were seeing videos of people protesting in the street. Since yesterday, I see more videos of just cars honking because they don't let anyone to stand on the street. But we know that the people have discontent and uh, grievances exist. So in the short term, it is likely that they push off people off of the streets, but this has been their main way of dealing with grievances you know, over the last uh, five, six years. And I wrote in 2019, that was also for a piece for monkey cage, but internet shutdown was internet shutdown for, but for how long? And so, but repression for how long? What happens now that we have an eruption, an explosion, people come to the street, there is repression, they kill some people, there are thousands of arrests each time, torture. And then we see a, a period of silence until it breaks out again. Um, and right now, I mean, today, I think there were fewer protests, but there are more protests also happening on university campuses. So it's hard to really predict what is going to happen. But because I see this broad sense of support and solidarity and discontent in different segments of Iranian society, it's possible that they push off people off of the street, but we see expression of this content in other spaces, just such as universities uh, or schools. Well, we're having this conversation on uh, Monday, September 26th, um, and uh, you'll be here, our listeners will be hearing it on Thursday. Um, and so we'll see what happens between now and then. But uh, Ali, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, hopefully we'll be talking with you about this again in the future. Thank you for having me.
This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and this week we're again going to talk to some of the authors of one of the chapters in our edited volume, the POMAPS collection, The Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprisings, edited by myself, Jillian Schwedler, and Sean Yom. This week, we're going to talk to some of the authors of chapter 11 toward a relational approach to local politics. The authors on the article were Janine Clark, Sarah Alcazaz, Mona Harb, and Lana Salman. With us today, we have Sarah and, and Lana. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark, for having us. Thank you. So to start off, um, the, one of the things which is very interesting about the chapter is that you look at, you survey the literature on sub, on local politics and you find some, what you consider to be some suboptimal methodological choices and framings. Could you tell us a little bit about what's wrong with the way many people frame the study of local politics? Lana? Yeah, so um, one of our realizations actually in writing this article or actually one of the dilemmas was how come there's this huge um, literature or significant literature in comparative politics about subnational politics that doesn't really engage with the with the MENA region, right? And there were examples of recent volumes that cover, you know, like many uh, areas of the world, but the MENA is virtually absent from these conversations. And um, our analysis in that article shows that actually that that uh, that the the absence of the MENA in these conversations is due to um, three factors basically, uh, or or two this and and one similarity that actually but that it doesn't show. So the two differences are both um, on epistemological grounds. So by which I mean, how do we understand the what we propose to call the local instead mm -hmm. of the subnational, and also methodological points. What is our unit of analysis, and is the uh, point here? really only causal, right? Is, is there another way of seeing this other than establishing causal links? Um, and the idea was that in um, the local politics and the MENA region, we are interested in questions that the other subnational politics is also interested in. For example, questions of authoritarianism and democracy, questions of the making or the power networks and local power networks and how they come to be, how they determine partisanship, how they affect electoral outcomes, how they affect relationships between citizens and their states. So all these questions are not uh, only true or valid in the MENA region. They are questions that we ask anywhere to understand the policies we live in. But for some reason, in the MENA, um, these studies in the MENA haven't been taken necessarily up by subnational research that doesn't cover outside the region. So one point, uh, one reason why this is true is because in, in that research, we've seen this, that the, the subnational is always a way of taking smaller units of analysis that aren't basically the national, Municip that could be jurisdictional, municipalities, et cetera, or non-jurisdictional, like a neighborhood, for example, but only to explore national level outcomes, right? We're only interested still in national level outcomes. And those um, tools or the, the subnational then becomes the tools to prove how a point or how a dynamic, to show how a dynamic functions at the national level. But there isn't real interest in understanding the formation of local politics, really, the production of local politics 
at that site, right? Be it the neighborhood, the municipality, the 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 bazaar, a, a big infra, the wastewater treatment, whatever the the place we are studying is. There's always the the concern to prove what is happening outside that that of which we are studying. And the second thing is that um, most of research on subnational politics outside the region is is you know understandably in the in the, in the political science discipline uh, interested in questions of causality, right? So this is a positivist tradition that uh, asks questions along the lines of under what conditions does a lead to be and what are the constraining factors, etc. Whereas there's a tradition, older tradition in MENA local politics research that is much more multidisciplinary, that uh, that has um, urban studies, geographers, political anthropologists, people interested in science, uh, scholars of science and technology studies, all of whom um, contributed to, to this field over the years to study uh, many things, both classical topics, authoritarianism, democracy, electoral uh, outcomes, etc., but also less explored topics um, in other regions. For example, the politics of infrastructure provision, for example, environmental harm and how people uh, fight that or resist to it, um, the global networks that constrain political action in place, and all of these things. So I think because of these reasons, our argument in this article has been to shift completely from the language of the subnational and think about the local and think seriously about local politics and its production in place, its crafting in place in that place we are studying. No, that's super interesting. Um, Sarah, what would you add to that? Um, thank you for that amazing introduction, Lana. Um, I think this sort of maybe crystallizing some of that. I think part of what Lana is saying is the issues that came out of decades of methodological nationalism that have made it very difficult to see kind of an unpack power dynamics that not only happen at the site of the local, but the site of the local in relation to other sites as well, right? It became only possible to see these things almost as hierarchical scales within political science if you stick to kind of a subnational research um, kind of methodology and, and framework. Um, but when we when you see what's actually coming out of Middle East politics, you see a much more dynamic understanding of the politics um, and the power dynamics that are operating at the local in relation to other scales, not just the national, but also other global um, spaces and sites, um, other transnational um, connections, you know, local to local, but also, you know, all sorts of other ways. And that was kind of the point that brings us to the title of this chapter, right? The relational um, approach to local politics, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, one of the things that is interesting, that's sort of coming out of what Lana is saying about the multidisciplinarity of um, the work that's coming out of MENA politics, um, is the fact that when you work in the Middle East and North Africa, um, there's a way in which a lot of the assumptions that are made within the the field that kind of fixes these scales in these hierarchical ways are just impossible. You know, it's impossible to ignore 
the issues with these assumptions when you when you kind of work in the Middle East and and other regions. But I think in the Middle East, it really jumps at you as you're doing your field work. You're like these jurisdictions. I mean, why did people decide that this was the right way to kind of decide where the local is? Right. Because it just doesn't make sense on the ground. Um, and so the fact that this this our kind of field is so field work rich, um, people spend so many, so many, you know, years getting to know their sites, um, they really know that you can't kind of just assume um, particular, you know, uh, notions of territoriality, particular mm -hmm. ways in which hierarchy um, works uh, within those scales. And I think that's what has given us so much dynamism um, and pushed scholars in the region, from the region, to seek out what's happening in other disciplines way sooner than other um, regions, not all regions, but certainly kind of at the forefront is kind of what emerged from what we were looking at as we wrote this chapter. And it's interesting because what you're seeing then as you survey the literature and as you survey what we've been doing as a field in, in, in around local politics is it's not just reproducing the same methodologies and questions at, at uh, you know, in, in particular sites, but actually developing new methodologies, new approaches. Uh, Sarah, you mentioned the title of the chapter towards a relational approach. So what does that mean exactly? Alana, maybe you could walk us through um, how you understand this question of relationality. Yes, so, um, so to, to, to not, let's not hear to the geographers because relational understandings of space, uh, of scale that we come to in this chapter two is something that has been, it's, it's an established tradition of research for geographers um, across the field of geography, geography, but particularly political geography where geographers um, started thinking about how, um, it's actually started with the work of John Agnew a long time ago in Italy, thinking about electoral outcomes. So thinking about a very political question, but also not being able to study electoral outcomes without necessarily thinking about space, right? Without necessarily taking the spatial elements, not only because these things work everything happens right in space, like everything happens within the time period. But because yeah, what John Agnew found then um, was that um, he couldn't tell which parties were local, national, subnational, etc., but that these parties and coalitions produced the territories they were, they were uh, appealing for constituents in, right? So they produced scale, basically. And, and they reworked these scales as they came into power, right? They selectively then reworked scale, appealing to different constituents over time. And so in the MENA region, um, what, we, what we thought for arguing for was to actually push this thinking about scale uh, further in terms of not taking units of analysis and as, for example, not in a hierarchical way, like municipalities as those subnational units that come below governor rates and then all of these below the national level, but to think about what actors, who produces these units. So how is a municipality, how does it come together, for example, not just as like a territorial administration, but as, you know, restructured bureaucracies, uh, uh, citizen, citizen participation, uh, sets of infrastructures, streets, networks, homes, uh, sewage systems that come together and determine a certain territory and, uh, and the governance 
the, the governance uh, of that territory. In Amana political science, particularly this thinking about scale has been pushed in interesting ways in recent years to think about topology. So no longer just about scale and taking distance, uh, like geometric distance, but to think about connectivity and proximity through this concept of topology. And here, um, the work of Jose Martinez, for example, about bread um, and um, the, the territory, the uh, Bashar regimes, the Assad regimes, control of territory through these global uh, flows of wheat. They're importing into different uh, conflict-affected areas of the country and to think about connectivity and proximity across distance. So even for really uh, geometrically distant uh, uh, actors who are, for example, in Ukraine, how they're actually much closer uh, in, uh, to the regime in maintaining territoriality over a grip over space. Um, so this is, and this thinking about scale, topology, etc., is a relational thinking about the local, because it shows, again, the production of the local. So instead of assuming that there is a unit analysis, uh, there is a unit of analysis out there that is a jurisdictional unit or a non-jurisdictional unit, and, and we study what happens in it, dynamic X that happens in neighborhood Y or municipality Z, we think about how neighborhood Y comes to exist because of certain flows, of materials, of expertise, of people, of influence, and gets constituted within this particular boundary, right? And this is a relational approach to local politics that transcends jurisdictions, that transcends materialities, people, humans, and non-humans, and that transcends uh, particular, mostly these jurisdictional, rigid jurisdictional um, understandings. So that was, uh, an, so part of the um, objective of this chapter was an invitation to push this rich research uh, forward even more. Now, speaking of materialities, uh, Sarah, you, you think that there are, uh, or the chapter argues that there are specific types of research and methods which follow from this. Yeah, so I mean, one of the big things about um, talking about kind of scale relationally, um, and especially thinking about the ways in which, um, as La really nicely articulated, politics is produced in that kind of, in the negotiation and the making of those scales, rather than thinking of um, kind of scale very rigidly, pushes you um, as, you know, push the field to look to other um, disciplines for, um, you know, and, and their methodologies. Um, and to think about those local sites, to be able to study them, you had to look somewhere else um, and look at new kind of um, ways of approaching them. Um, and some of the ways that became kind of really influential, um, and I would say kind of really um, uh pushed um, our understanding of local politics in MENA in very interesting directions, uh, were both kind of uh, leaning towards geography, as, as Lana has been saying, saying, and especially kind of the spatial turn in um, the social sciences and the humanities, um, and also um, the turn towards material ecologies. Um, and so thinking of those um, sites and thinking of the relations between them, amongst them, through, through which power is produced um, in terms of um, kind of 
takes really central to, to doing that is being very cognizant of the importance of spatial dynamics um, and kind of the relationship between space and time, um, the way in which, uh, you know, thing, uh, important work like, um, you know, thinking of the politics of verticality, like A.L. Weisman's work, you know, thinking, you know, in, in 3 and 4D about those local sites um, became really central to shifting how we think about um, how politics is produced. Um, but also in terms of um, thinking about material ecologies, you know, it started to become a lot more influential to think with um, theorists who have been pushing for uh, kind of a decentering of the human actor in our explanations of the political um, and to push for opening up um, to non-human agents and actors as producing and co-producing that politics. Um, and so we talk a little bit of it, about that in the chapter and how it has kind of been taken up by scholars of um, Middle East and North Africa in uh, kind of showing us and kind of illustrating very different political dynamics as these material ecologies became centered um, in the analysis. So this is all really interesting in terms of different kinds of approaches and methodologies and ways of thinking about local politics. Maybe as one last question, each of you could give an example or two of how this is manifested in the literature where we're seeing kind of new ways of understanding things. What do you think are some of the best examples of the application of this type of research? Uh, Lana? Yes, so um, I gave this uh, this example already in the talk, but the the research about which combines both the materialities and the politics of scale, the work of Jose Martinez again about um, bread, the politics of bread um, in uh, in a in a conf in, in, so he worked on Jordan, right? So this was studying welfare policies from the materialist uh, material aspect of bread and its distribution spatially through bakeries, etc. But also thinking about this um, uh, broadly in conflict settings, he also collaborated with Almer Siri, for example, in thinking about checkpoints and circulations um, uh, through territory and um, the, the obstacles that poses and the political subjectivities that result from circulations in space that way. Um, I, in my own work, I think a lot about municipalities differently. So in the sense that their, their production at a time um, and their constant reproduction at a time of, of what now in Tunisia scholars are calling right democratic backsliding or whatever the situation is now, thinking particularly about how these um, uh, mechanisms, how these institutions are more than just territorial entities, but basically how they are produced through mechanisms or through processes of informal and popular urbanization across time, and no matter what regimes um, are in place. So these are the examples I can think about now. Sarah, how about you? Um, I mean, the, the examples are 
there are just so many, so much interesting work happening right now um, in that arena. Uh, maybe what comes to mind at the moment is, um, you know, thinking about uh, the scholarship on logistics uh, ports, uh, Solade Khalili's work, Rafif Ziada's work, um, and many others who are really charting a new kind of new ways for us to think about how local sites like ports um, are remapping um, or have have been mapping for a long time and we kind of been missing that politics um, uh, flows of uh, you know capital uh, global commodities and how they are reshaping how we think about um, uh, power uh, how we think about uh, the distribution of wealth um, beyond for example they're focusing on the gulf so they're pushing us to think beyond you know Old, old school kind of notions of frontierism as explaining everything that happens in the Gulf um, and instead taking us to these really interesting, um, you know, global transnational flows from very specified sites of places like um, ports. Um, there's a lot of really interesting work on infrastructure, Joanne Neutro's work on uh, 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 Jessica Barnes's work, uh, Sophia Simachapula Robbins, so much um, work that is really kind of um, looking at how we can think about um, sites of waste management, sites of um, water, um, uh, water purification. I mean, all sorts of of, of, of these uh, sites, dams, and so on. Uh, Begum Adalet's work, obviously, um, that really push us to like, you know, for, for example, Begum Adalit's work is trying to push us to rethink the politics of modernization theory and the moment and the money and the expertise and so on that and the experimentation of ideas that came to be modernization theory through the making of infrastructure in a very kind of localized site around the Middle East and she's focusing on Turkey um, that shaped all sorts of developments that happen both in the global south and across the global north. So um, that sort of work um, has really been pushing the boundaries boundaries of our field in fascinating ways. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll say um, also that like, what's what I find really interesting about this, this whole line of work is the way in which so many things are coming together in these kinds of analyses, right? Um, the mapping out the tracing of these connections across spaces, but also this kind of attention to the way geopolitics, um, Cold War politics, post-Cold War politics are shaping and shifting those sites in interesting ways. Um, expertise and how it travels, um, and as, as we've been saying for a long time, kind of these material ecologies um, is really kind of the way these things come together in this work, I think, is really um, fascinating and pushing the boundaries of the field. One of the things which emerges from that is, as I've heard you both say, is that in a sense, it de-exceptionalizes the Middle East. It makes it very much part of these global flows of commodities and capital and people um, in which the local connects quite organically and directly to the global. Um, maybe we could just talk about that uh, in this last little bit. Uh, Lana? Yeah, so um, I think that uh, the exceptional Middle East is not just a question uh, or a dilemma in um, uh, local politics, right? It plagues kind of the entire 
uh, field with specific tropes with which the region is so intimately attached, like, oh, forever authoritarian. Democracy, if it happens, is, is an exception. And uh, I mean, again, we can see what happened with what happened in Tunisia recently and the articles that uh, were published. Uh, maybe Tunisians never wanted democracy and the likes, you know. So so I think there is uh, this trope defining defining the region. And, and we see it again in research on um, uh, local politics as one of the ways of, of studying the region. And I think thinking of scale, thinking of these connections and global flows, thinking of materiality, the human and non-human, think of relationality, really makes us see uh, or demonstrates that the dynamics we are studying are not about are not common to the region only. They are universal dynamics, but they have specific configurations in this region. Like any questions we ask from a space has specific configurations, histories, etc., attached to these spaces and the way uh, and the way these and the forces that shape these histories too. So, and I think because again, to the attention, the, the empirical, the deep empirical attention to um, to to historical to the historical production of these dynamics, to the materialities, etc., we can think about these questions in a much more um, fine-tuned way, and really argue again for for how global they are in in their manifestation. Sarah, how about we give the last word to you? Um, thanks, Anna. This is a Great kickoff. I think, um, I mean, one of the things that I would completely echo this point, right, that as we open up and kind of see how a lot of this politics is produced trans-regionally um, and through these kind of um, uh, processes that travel in unexpected sites and places, um, it makes it, it kind of opens up questions about why regions became um, so central to how we think about the political. Again, another scale that has been kind of um, favored and prioritized in particular ways that foreclosed other ways of asking really important questions. Um, but the other thing that it does, I think, um, and that comes to the point about that Lana was saying about kind of the specificities of how these things come together in the region. One of the things that helps us see is the political dynamics that have been produced and have been performed by all of the work that went into exceptionalizing the Middle East as a region, right? Um, so as we open up that kind of Pandora's box and we push boundaries of how we see power produced as beyond kind of exceptional politics in the Middle East, we also understand and dig up and open up the imperial histories, the colonial, the, 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 race, the racial um, capitalist histories, through which the region that produced particular politics um, through that work of exceptionalism itself. And I think that's really kind of a huge contribution of this, of this kind of work, um, of this relational work around local sites that is um, to the field as well. Brilliant. Uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah Alcazaz, uh, Lana Salman, thank you for joining us to talk about uh, your chapter in our volume, The Political Science of the Middle East. <music>